All right, how we doing? Welcome. Good to have you guys here. Hey, it's officially Christmas time. This is absolutely my favorite time of the year. I, I love it. You've got the sights, and you've got the lights, and you've got the sounds, the music, you've got the food, and you've even got the corny jokes, like this one. What did Adam say the night before Christmas? It's Christmas Eve. Yeah, there we go. During this month of December, I'm excited. We are going to be looking at the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Oftentimes, when you talk about the Christmas story, oftentimes people turn to Luke's Gospel. That's more heavily used at this time because it includes the famous story of the angels and the shepherds showing up at Jesus' birth. But the book of Matthew doesn't include those details, but the book of Matthew does include some pretty awesome information that really begins to help illuminate the beginnings of Jesus' life on earth. And so we're going to call this series this month, we're going to call it Finding God in Unexpected Places, because throughout these two chapters of, of Matthew we'll, that we'll study the next couple of weeks, this theme will emerge time and time again. We will see that God continues to show up in and through places and people that you would never expect. So my prayer is that perhaps this Christmas season, perhaps God will show up in your life and in my life in ways that we might not expect if we weren't really looking for him. Today we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. Now, let's be honest, this Section of scripture is a genealogy. It is a, a section of names, a list of names. And if we're going to be honest, most of the time, whether we're reading in the Old Testament or the New Testament, when we come across a passage like this, we skip it, right? I mean, let's be honest. I know, I know for me, I know I do. I can hardly pronounce half of these names anyways, just being honest. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And I believe that even if I butcher half of these names, there's a couple of things about Jesus' genealogy that we'll, we'll, we will learn, that will apply, and can have an impact in our lives. So we're in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You can follow along on the screen or uh, read in your own Bible. It starts out and it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of uh, Aminadab. And Aminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jokaniah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. In verse 12, 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ibiud, and Ibiud the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And that is God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here today. That God, we are with your people. God, the church is not a building. The church is not a location. The church is your people. So, God, we are so thankful for the opportunity to be with your people today. And, God, as we open up your word, and even as we look at this genealogy, God, we know that this is your word. And that, God, you can speak and change our lives through it. So, God, I pray that you would help us to lean in today. That you would speak clearly to us. That you would reveal yourself to us even through this genealogy. And, God, we trust that you are going to do a work in our lives here today. God, we pray for your spirit to fill this room, that God, you would be made much of. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so we've got three things that I want to point out that we will learn from Jesus' genealogy. Three things that we'll point out and, and learn. The first is this, that the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. You get that? The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. See, most stories or fairy tales, they start out with, with something like this, like once upon a time or, or somewhere in a galaxy far, far away or something like that. But that's not how Matthew starts out his book. He starts out with a genealogy, which is his way of saying what I'm going to tell you actually happened. It is actual history. See, Christianity's most important feature is that Christianity is all about actual history. Christianity, at its core, is not just a set of principles that Jesus taught. Rather, Christianity, at its core, is all about what Jesus was going to do for us. It's not about what he teaches, it's about what he does. Most religions, when you begin to peel back the layers... We'll see that most religions are, are teachings on what you have to do to earn God's approval. It's essentially good advice on how to please God. It's not necessarily based on history or based on the actual teacher itself. It's based on teachings. Take, take Buddhism, for example. The principles of Buddhism, they are not dependent on Buddha. The, the, the teachings of Buddhism still exists even if Buddha never existed. It's the same thing for Islam. Islam is a pattern for how Allah wants people to live. Muhammad, he's just the prophet. He's the mouthpiece of these teachings, but Islam would still exist even without Muhammad. But Christianity is different. Christianity is not about teachings. Christianity is not about how to please God. The foundation of Christianity is not what Jesus taught us to do, but rather what he would do for us. 
It's about Jesus going to the cross and paying the penalty for our sin that we could not pay on our own. Now, of course, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean, this covers a ton of what Jesus taught. But the central element of each of these books, each of the Gospels, is what Jesus did for us. Of Jesus going to the cross and bearing the penalty of our sins and dying on the cross and then raising from the grave. That is the core of what Christianity is all about. It's not what Jesus taught. It's what Jesus did for us. It's not just good advice on how to please God. It is Jesus providing the way to please God. I mean, honestly, the last thing that this world needs is another good teacher with good advice. C.S. Lewis, the author of the book Mere Christianity, he said this, He says, there has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A little bit more would not have made a difference. I mean, we've never followed the advice of great teachers anyways. Why would we be likely to begin now? C.S. Lewis continues and he says, if Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. See, we need a different kind of salvation. We need a different kind of Savior. And God became that for us by entering into history and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We, we could never earn God's approval. We could never do enough to be good. And so Jesus came and Jesus became good for us. And he suffered the wrath for our sin for us. And see, those who believe this and receive it, they are changed forever, not primarily because of what Jesus taught, but because of what Jesus did for us. Listen, the most important thing about the gospel is that God came into history through Jesus, that he died for us on the cross to make us right with God. And this must be believed and received like a gift which means you are not a Christian. You are not a Christian if you were just trying to emulate the teachings of Jesus. Being a moral person and doing the things that Jesus taught does not make you a Christian. Even if you do those things really well, better than most people, that still does not make you a Christian. Because at the core of Christianity, it is not a set of of teachings to be followed Rather, it is a gift that Jesus has provided for us that must be received. So this is why we say the gospel is not primarily good advice, it's good news. And Matthew starts his book out by saying very clearly, what I'm about to tell you is is not just good advice. It is good news. It is true, actual, real history and time. Second thing that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus teaches us is that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior. Look at how Matthew starts out in verse 1. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus who? It says, Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus' last name is not Christ? (laughs) I mean, how many of you have thought that before? I mean, don't lie. I used to think that. You know, Kevin, do yet Jesus Christ? That's not what he's saying here. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word meaning Messiah or the anointed one. 
Christ is a title that is given to Jesus. So what Matthew is saying is that Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the promised Savior. So he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he says, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So what's the deal with David and Abraham? What's what's the big deal with them? Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God made a couple of promises to both David and to Abraham about his coming Messiah. In Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 14. God gave a promise to King David. And this is what he said. He says, From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you'll lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the sons of men. See, what God promised to, to David was that the Messiah, the Christ, his lineage would be connected to David. It was absolutely necessary. God made that promise and said, hey, David, Out of your ancestors, the Messiah is going to come. So here, Matthew calling Jesus the son of David, he's making the point that Jesus is indeed a descendant of David. In fact, the genealogy of the rest of this chapter of chapter 1 of Matthew is affirming this truth that Jesus is from the lineage and the, the, the history of David and Abraham. And then if you turn back a little further to Genesis chapter 12, God had made a promise to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this is what God said to Abraham. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the kicker. He says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, one of the themes that you're going to find all throughout the book of Matthew is that Matthew repeatedly points out that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise that God just made to Abraham. Repeatedly, Matthew says, Jesus, Jesus is the promised. He is the one who will bless all the families and the people of the earth. He is the one who is going to make all things right. He's the one who is going to change the world. See, Jesus wasn't just sent to save Israel. He wasn't just sent to save the Jews. Jesus didn't just come to save white America or anyone else. He came to save all. All peoples of the world, black, white, red, brown, even blue, and everyone in the middle. I mean, think, think of how Matthew ends his book in Matthew chapter 28 with the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, Jesus sends all of his disciples to go out and to make disciples of all nations. So the book ends to Matthew's book. The beginning and the end is that Jesus is a promised one who will bless the entire world. 
Jesus is the promised one who has come to offer salvation to the entire world, to change the world and to flip it upside down. You want to know why this matters to us? I mean, we've got to wonder, why does it matter to us today? Why is Jesus being the Savior so significant? Look around you. Look around you. There is discouragement all over the place. Unbelief is growing. Secularism is taking over. I mean, you can hardly say Merry Christmas without getting into trouble. I mean, there's all sorts of corruption in our institutions. There's disease. There's scandal. There's all sorts of crap happening all throughout our world. And who is it that we are looking for to make things right? Do we think that President Obama is really able to make things right? Or are we waiting for Mike Huckabee or someone else to come in and make things right? Does LeBron James winning a championship with Cleveland, does that really make a difference in what happens in our world? Does, does Bono or Oprah or immigration reform or a ceasefire in the Middle East, does that really have the ability to influence and remedy and change our world? And what about our own lives? What about our disappointments and our difficulties? Who can heal our hurts? Where do we turn for hope when our kids are walking away from what's good and from what's right? Where, where, do, we, where do we turn? Where do we get hope that our addictions don't have to be the end of us? Where do we turn when the marriage is in trouble? Where do we turn when joblessness hits? See, the answer to all of our problems is not found in politics or, or self-help or trying harder. Matthew just told us where the answer is found. It's found in Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He's the only one who can truly change our world. He's the only one that can truly change our lives, that can give us hope and meaning and freedom. Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the promised seed from Abraham. He's the promise to Abraham that will bless and change the world. He is the Messiah, the promised Savior. And that's what Matthew was saying by saying, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he is the one who has come to change the world. So Jesus' genealogy teaches us that the gospel is not just good advice, but it's good news. It teaches us that Jesus is the Messiah, the the promised Savior. And thirdly, with that foundation, Matthew is going to take the rest of this text and list out a genealogy of more than 40 names in verses 2 through 17. And what these names will teach us is that God uses screw-ups and sinners. Third thing we learn from this text is that God uses screw-ups and sinners. Now, when Matthew lists out these names, he is very precise in the way he organizes this list. I mean, lineage was a big deal to people in their, in their days, much more than it is for us today. And so Matthew was very careful in the way that he crafted this list of descendants. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean that they, their, their lists were exact or, or perfect. They Rather, were precise just to include the people that helped make them point, make their point. So it was common for generations to be skipped. I mean, how many of you have that one guy in your family, you know, Uncle Bob, and you're just like, I just want to forget he even exists. 
There's, there's a time and a point in the genealogy that sometimes they skip over generations that doesn't take away from the truth of generation, but to, to, to skip over to make their point. I mean, you have to remember that when Matthew wrote this genealogy, this was a oral society. Most people couldn't read or write. So they would often create some sort of mnemonic device uh, of some sort to help people memorize this genealogy. And oftentimes they would leave certain generations out if they just simply weren't memorable. So here's Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, specifically shaped to demonstrate Jesus' royal link to David and Abraham. But what, what intrigues me is this. When you read through this genealogy, this list of names in Jesus' family, man, there's some questionable people here. I mean, sure, there's some pretty awesome people, but there's some quite a few people who are known as, as screw-ups and sinners. I mean, look at a few of these names and listen to their stories. First off, normally in genealogies, they're typically all going to be male. Women wouldn't be mentioned in a genealogy. But if you paid attention to this text, Matthew lists four women in this genealogy. And not only were they women, but three of them were known for major sexual sin. Start out in verse 3. He lists Tamar. Genesis chapter 38 tells a story that Tamar tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into an incestuous relationship where she gets pregnant with twins named Perez and Terah. I mean, talk about an awkward Thanksgiving, right? In verse 5, we find a gal named Rahab. Now, we studied Rahab here this past year when we studied the book of Joshua. She is famous for having saved the Israelite spies in Joshua chapter 2. But let's not forget how she did that. She saved them because she was a prostitute. And the people of the city were used to her having men coming in and out of her home. Verse 6, we read about Bathsheba, who is listed as Uriah's wife. Bathsheba, we know, is known for being forced into an adulterous relationship with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Those are the women that are listed in Jesus' genealogy. Besides these women, the list just keeps going. I mean, in verse 2, you see Abraham himself. Twice, in Genesis 12 with Genesis 20, Abraham lied about his wife, saying, Oh no, she's my sister instead of my wife, because he was fearful of getting killed. A lot of faith that shows he has in God. In verse 2, Jacob. We know Jacob from Genesis 27. He cons his father, Abraham, to giving the blessing that belonged to his older brother. Jacob was a con man. That's what he was. Verse 6, King David. Man, this dude was, was, was known as a man after God's own heart. But all throughout the Bible, we see he also practiced polygamy. In 2 Samuel 11, he commits adultery, and he murdered one of his soldiers, Uriah, in order to cover up his adultery. King Solomon, verse 6. This dude had like 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, most guys collect baseball cards. This dude collected women. Verse 7 lists Rehoboam and Abijah. Verse 8 lists Jehoram. And, and verse 10 lists Manasseh. And, and the Bible, all of these dudes, the Bible describes as being wicked and evil. I mean, have I made my point here? I mean, you think your family history is bad? Jesus, the anointed one, Emmanuel, God with us. And his family tree is full of screw-ups. 
The one who's been sent to save all of mankind. The one whom God has been planning since the first moment sin entered creation. Man, even he has baggage in his family tree. And in this detailed and precise attempt to demonstrate Jesus' royal lineage, Matthew at the same time shows Jesus' utterly human and broken family history. I mean, this is a, here's a fundamental lesson that we need to learn about God. It's that God uses broken people. God uses imperfect people. In fact, God's use of misfits and screw-ups and broken people, it didn't just stop with Jesus' genealogy. Really, the whole Bible, from start to finish, is the story of God using one screwed-up person after another. But God redeems the mess and works through it all. Because the reality is that every person is broken and flawed on some level. And God does his best work right in the midst of all of that. So as we start out this new series, Finding God in Unexpected Places, and especially as we look at Jesus' family tree, and we find God amongst the scrubs and the sinners, there's a couple of simple applications that I hope will stick with you, will challenge you, will comfort you, will change you. Three simple applications. First one is this. I want you to see that your past or your family does not define you. Because if our past and if our family really does define us, then Jesus couldn't have been the perfect son of God. See, rather, God gives every person, regardless of their baggage and their history, he gives them the opportunity for new life in him through Jesus. Some of you know a little bit about my background. You know that me and two of my sisters were adopted out of the foster system when we were really young. Honestly, I don't talk talk much about it because it's painful. And perhaps I carry a little bit of shame or embarrassment. My biological father in 1983 was high on cocaine. He plowed his car into two other cars, killing five people. Served 13 years in prison. Got out of prison. And within a year... He got into a pursuit with King County Sheriff's deputies. He crashed his car and he got out of his car holding a shotgun. King County deputies shot and killed him. My biological mom, she battled with drugs and alcohol her entire life. She died way too young from complications due to alcohol. And yet God is writing a new story with my life. God is doing something new here. I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by my family background. And you might have the ugliest family background, the most brokenness and sin and shame in your life, but God doesn't define you by that. God can write a whole new story in your life, and He can change the course of your family, starting with you. Starting today, God can do something new. God can break that, 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 that history. He can break that line and do something completely new, because God does not define us by our family background by what's happened, by where we come from. Second thing that this genealogy will will teach us is that God can redeem any level of brokenness for good. 
God can redeem any level of brokenness for good. I mean, just look at the people that God used to bring about his plan for a savior. If God can take a murderer, a couple of adulterers, a prostitute, and even some evil kings, and God can work out his plan to bring about a sinless savior for the world, if God can do all of that through those people, imagine the good that God can bring about from the rubble and the mess of our lives. God can take any person any situation, and use it for his plan for good. And one of the best things about being a Christian is the Bible says that you experience a new birth. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you surrender to Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says that you become a new creation. You get a restart. You get a start over. You get a, you get a whole new beginning. You aren't known by your past, but you are now known by Jesus. And God specializes in taking the broken and the screwed up and the sinful people in the world and making them new and changing their story in a way that only God can do. I mean, this genealogy, it reads exactly like it should, kind of like an advertisement for God, that God wants men and women who screwed it up badly. Failure has not once tied God's hands. God has never looked at a failure and said, oh man, I don't know what to do now. No, failure is always God's invitation to show up. Failure is precisely the way that God gets credit for doing all that he's doing. Because we know it's all about him and not about us. And when we're in that moment of failure, when we realize how broken we really are, that's when we look and say, God, I need you. God, I can't do this on my own. God, I keep failing, but God, I know you can do something, so I surrender to you. And when we do that, that's when God shows up in the best times and the best ways. And finally, third application from Jesus' genealogy means that every person that we look, that we lock eyes on is precious to God and can be used by him. Not one person is too far gone. Nobody is out of God's reach. You see, God isn't limited by our silly perceptions. We have these perceptions of people. You know, that guy, he's just too far removed. He's just got too much baggage. He's just, his life is so screwed up. There's no way that God can do anything with that. God is not limited by our human perceptions. See, what if, what if this Christmas... What if we ask God for eyes to see him in people that she would least expect it? I mean, look, even today, we have the opportunity to have who knows how many people come into our building tonight after the lighted parade. I mean, I mean, who knows what to expect? We may have 300 people show up. We might have 10. I'm praying for the bigger number. But every single person who comes through our doors tonight... They might be the roughest person you've ever met. They might be the meanest person you've ever met. They may dress differently than you. They may talk differently than you. They may be the kind of person that you'd want to protect your daughters from. But I'm pretty sure that God's word is clear. That God's love never stops. That no one is ever too far removed. And we as Christians... 
As believers, as a church, we are called the body of Christ. We are called the body of Christ. So imagine what God could do through every one of us. If we loved people the way that God loves them. If we really acted like the body of Christ, his hands and feet. And as these people come in through our doors today, what if we loved them with the kind of love that God has for them? And extended that kind of grace and love and forgiveness and welcome to those people. Imagine if they could experience the love of Christ tonight through us. And that God would begin to change their lives. And they would surrender into a relationship with him. Imagine what kind of impact that would have. That we would love people and see them the way that God does so they can experience the life-changing love of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we're called to do? Isn't that what we are called to do? So this Christmas, let's ask God for eyes to see as He sees. Perhaps we need to look at our own selves differently. Perhaps we need to say, sure, my life's got all these issues, but that does not define me. God can do a new work within me. I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by my family. God, today, God, would you do something different in my life? Would you do something different in my family? Would you break this chain of sin and brokenness and do something new today? Perhaps you need to ask God to help you look at others differently. That we would ask God to help us see the eternal value and worth that God has extended to every single one of us. And to every single person that God has created. And this Christmas, let's recognize that most often God isn't found in the royal and the grandiose But throughout scriptures and even in our very own lives, God does his best work in the people that you would least expect. So let's ask God to adjust our vision this Advent season so that we can find God in all kinds of unexpected places and unexpected people. Let's pray.